Howdy folks, today's Tuesday, November 28th. It's been a, a, a bit since I last sat down and recorded one of these podcasts, mainly because I spent, uh, not this week, but last week and much of the week before that, uh, completing a really long translation on the Novocherkask massacre. It's a long, long, long read, uh, a special report by Medusa's Daniel Turovsky, and I strongly recommend going to Medusa's English language uh, uh, website and checking out this, I'll put a link to this in the podcast uh, description. Um, but really, so it's, it's a very long read, but it's a it's a really wonderful read. Um, a lot of research went into this, and it's just a fantastic story. And I hope you get a chance to read it. So Russia seems like it wants to take command of uh, an internet for the emerging economies for the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And apparently the Putin signed on to this, the, uh, the Security Council in Russia, not the UN Security Council, but Russia's Security Council, uh, has instructed the Communications Ministry and the Foreign Ministry to develop plans to duplicate the internet's uh, uh, domain name infrastructure for the entire world, apparently, and this would this this would allow uh, internet users to I don't know access websites independently of the the system that's currently in place that's that's essentially overseen by uh, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers and the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority to organizations nonprofits that are based in the United States that have had oversight from the U.S. Department of Commerce, although that that uh, arrangement came to an end uh, a little more than a year ago. Uh, but these nonprofits are still responsible for coordinating, the, you know, the maintenance and the procedures of a lot of the important databases uh, and then, you know, the namespaces of the Internet. And R- Russia's not happy about that. They've said before that they're not happy. In fact, since at least 2014... Uh, Moscow has conducted what it calls exercises to test the sustainability of the Russian internet, meaning the .ru and the .rf, the Cyrillic uh, domain. And uh, they've duplicated the domain names for those two top-level domains. And I don't know how they run these tests exactly, but the tests are designed to essentially, they're, they're like a backup plan for the Russian internet if the the World Wide Web is ever cut off, if Russia's ever cut off from the World Wide Web. And the 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 thinking is that it could be, if I understand correctly, the thinking is that the United States might uh, do this either as a cyber attack or as a form of international sanctions. And it used to seem like pure paranoia and nonsense that the Russians were preparing for this. And also it seemed like, complete, like a complete uh, um, cover for pre- preparing the kind of tools and infrastructure necessary to shut Russians' in internet access off from the outside world. But I will say that uh, with all the sanctions that Russia's been hit with since 2014, um, and nothing has, not, they haven't had their worldwide internet connection shut off or anything, but it seems slightly more plausible now that uh, there is a scenario where, you know, the U.S. might uh, exert its its influence over the internet in such a way as to limit Russia's access. Putin has apparently issued an executive order asking the his government to draw up 
uh, formal proposal by uh, August 1st. So the his his uh, government has some time, and presumably it'll still be him in the Kremlin when uh, when the deadline comes, and we'll see where that goes. It's been a weird week for Russia's Federal Investigative Committee. Uh, on Monday, uh, one of the one of the agency's spokespeople attended a, a religious conference in Yekaterinburg and said that the investigative committee will re-examine evidence of the 1918 execution of the of the Russia's last last Tsar and his family to determine if it was a ritual killing. And um, that might not sound like much to a lot of non-Russians, but the notion of a ritual killing is sort of featured prominently in a lot of anti-Semitic propaganda about the Bolsheviks and about the fall of the Tsarist Empire and so on. And so at least the optics of the investigative committee sort of uh, giving the time of day to the notion that uh, the Tsar was killed in a ritual killing doesn't look good if you're if you're uh, in the Jewish community in Russia. So the investigative committee seems to suddenly believe that uh, almost 100 years later, maybe they can conduct a an examination, open the case, and, uh, you know, they're, they're willing to consider that it may have been a ritual killing. It, 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 it's, it, doesn't, look so, it doesn't look so good if, uh, if you're in the Jewish community in Russia. Seizing on the momentum of this story and the anti-Semitic overtones of the investigative committee's overtures here, Leonid Volkov, the campaign manager uh, for Alexei Navalny's presidential campaign and the sort of longtime right-hand man, of uh, of Navalny, he publicized a story on Facebook saying that he finally felt comfortable after two years. Two years ago, he heard the story from a, a an investigator in uh, Novosibirsk, and he tells the story of of a woman who of, of the woman who formally uh, pressed charges against him in the so called microphone case. Now, I don't need to get into this into too much detail, but basically in, uh, in August 2015, Volkov was charged with this felony crime of attacking a journalist. And the, he, was, he was 15 months later, he was convicted, but of a lesser offense. And he got a small fine, about 500 bucks. And then it, it, it took, he, he appealed, he lost the appeal, and then he paid the fine right away. And then a year later, which was roughly a, a month or two ago, the criminal charge was expunged from his record. He says that that happening and this investigator in Novosibirsk having recently retired now gives him enough confidence and comfort to come forward with the story that he told, that she told him uh, two years ago, which is that um, before she brought charges against him, Alexander Bastrykin personally flew to Novosibirsk and pressured her to lock him up. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of obvious, right? Because they clearly um, went after Volkov in a, in a essentially very politicized uh, case, and so that's that's not so surprising. But according to Volkov, uh, Bastrykin, when when pressuring this investigator, unleashed uh, a kind of surprising anti-Semitic tirade. And what he said was, he said uh, he said to this woman, according to Volkov, um, speaking about Volkov, Bastrykin said. They say this little Jew from Luxembourg came here to stage a revolution, that he got itchy feet over there. We went through all this 100 years ago when they sent us the sealed train of Jews from Switzerland. He's talking about Lenin. 
Um, and he says, you got to understand uh, that all these people are enemies of the Russian people. So uh, enemies of the Russian people, he's talking about Jews, um, or he's at least talking about Jews who live in Europe and then come back to Russia with, you know, p- political aims or whatever. I mean, maybe he's he's specifically referring to those types of Jews and, and not all Jews. doesn't look so good at, at any rate. And so um, Volkov came forward with this story uh, on Tuesday morning, and uh, it's pretty wild. It's it's. I mean, I'm not suggesting that Volkov is is a completely reliable narrator, and he obviously has uh, a dog in this fight, and he's got plenty of reasons to dislike Bostrykin and to dislike the investigative committee, and you know he might be fudging details of what this this investigator woman in Novosibirsk told him, uh, or you know maybe what the woman told him isn't accurate. Can't say, uh, but it still makes for a pretty interesting story. And I will say that his Facebook post, which is which I summarized in a in a uh, English language post on Medusa, it's pretty well written, and there's a really nice uh, story arc to it. Senya Subchak is uh, in the news again. I mean, she's in the news a lot these days, obviously, but she's in the news again for what appears to be another sort of stupid campaign move. Now, in her defense, it, this might not be anything the campaign did, and I'll give you the story in a second here, but I just think it's amusing how how um, absurd this whole her whole campaign is and uh, how dysfunctional the, the team seems to be. But here's what the story is. Uh, activists from a movement called Protest Moscow which is an openly pro-Navalny movement. So obviously they don't like Subchak. She's a spoiler, and they want their their candidate to be added to the ballot, not Subchak. Um, they have accused Subchak's campaign of registering fake supporters on its on the website uh, to exaggerate her following. And what they found was that on November 24th, between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. Moscow time, uh, the number of signatures endorsing her candidacy listed on the website, jumped suddenly by more than 10,000 people. And in the hours before and after, the numbers are, you know, in the, in the hundreds, not even the thousands. And in fact, they say that for the time they've been monitoring the website, there's only been a, it, the website's only registered um, a jump of more than 1,000 signatures in a single hour only once. And so looking at the, at the uh, spreadsheet that they posted online, this was an absurd anomaly. And... The Subchak campaign, as far as I understand, is not disputing the the numbers that Protest Moscow has released. What they say is that the spike is due to Subchak's appearance on national TV the night before on the uh, talk show of Vladimir Solovyov, a real dickhead asshole uh, uh, propaganda fellow. And um, he's got a very combative, horrible television show. And it's popular, I guess. I mean, it is popular, and he's a he's a prominent figure. Um, but if, unless I'm mistaken, the show didn't air at 1 a.m. In, in Moscow, and so uh, I, and also if it had aired on, t- I mean, because when she was on TV, she had a T-shirt that that had the URL for her website, and she mentioned it uh, a few times, inviting people to come sign up. So it would be, you know, it would be natural to assume there would have been a spike on her website after she was on TV. What I don't understand is why the spike was limited to a single hour. I would think that that as the show sort of washed over uh, viewers across Russia, there would be sort of a there would be a spike when it hit Moscow, but that there would also be you know more lots more signatures pouring in uh, in the hours before and after. That doesn't seem to have happened. 
and it doesn't help that Subchuck's press secretary told Medusa that this the surge is is uh, in registrations online is just demonstrates the power of TV. I think that's I don't think the numbers quite bear that out, and it is suspicious, and it seems to me like a kind of fumbled attempt by the Subchuck campaign to make it look like the TV appearance really really did well for the campaign. But again, I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe the 10,000-plus signatures that occurred in that one hour and not before or after was indeed from the, the television appearance by Subchak on Selevyov's show. But it's, it seems awfully suspicious to me, far more suspicious than the Subchak campaign is letting on. And that just uh, that erodes you know, confidence in, in their trustworthiness, I would, I would say. One final story I wanted to cover was uh, the the Polish historian that was deported from Russia last Friday, Henryk Gleboki. I might not be saying his name right, um, but uh, he was detained and deported from uh, Moscow. The the uh, the local police apparently grabbed him and handed him over to FSB agents uh, at the Leningradsky train station, and they showed him a single document saying he had to leave. The country by midnight, and what I don't quite get is, based on Medusa's interview, which is translated into English, uh, he was given what appears to be 45 minutes to get out of the country, and he was told this while standing at the train station, and so he had to, even if he, you know, strapped a rocket pack to his back and flew straight to Sheremetyevo or Domodedovo or whatever, I don't see how he was able to get out of the country that quickly. So. They must have cut him some slack on actually leaving before midnight. Or maybe if he was on his way or packing his bags before midnight, they considered that acceptable. But uh, it's a, it's, I wouldn't call it an amazing story, but, uh, but uh, if, if you're an academic working in Russia, and um, I, know, I know quite a few, uh, it is uh, interesting insofar as you know, if, if, this, this person wasn't doing overly political work. He was doing pure sort of history. He was lecturing on, I suppose, what you might call politically sensitive issues. He, 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 when he was in St. Petersburg on this trip, he apparently gave a lecture on the NKVD uh, uh, national operations against Polish citizens in, during the terror in the, you know, the mid, sort of late 1930s. And so there, there I suppose you could say there's some political, politically sensitive information. But at the same time, um, that doesn't strike me as a deportable offense. And the Russian foreign ministry later explained his deportation as a retaliatory measure against uh, the Polish government's decision on October 11th to deport a Russian historian who's been accused of, uh, of working for Russian intelligence agencies. So this could very well be a limited uh, um, instance where Russia just needed a, a, a scapegoat or a victim to um, balance things out. But uh, I think it's worth reading um, uh, Gliboki's interview just to sort of get a sense of how exactly these deportations can occur if you're, if you're a, a Western academic. Mm-hmm.